History lecture number 101, Rabbi Blyworth. So we, in our last episode, we, uh, we went through uh, the Muslim movement of Rabbi Israel Salanter and learned a lot of Muslim in the course of it because uh, you can't really talk about such things without, uh, without, without uh, you know, improving your own midos and see, seeing how, how great these, uh, these individuals were. It was not a, push, not a, not a simple uh, project. Um, there are some amazing personalities who are alive in the 19th century, and uh, I'm going to mention a few of them now. One, very briefly, Rabbi Avram Hirsch Eisenstadt, who is known by his um, commentary on the Shulchan Aruch. He writes a very uh, interesting, unusual commentary with an agenda. It's called the Pischei Tshuva. He lived in Bialystok. My grandmother's family comes from Bialystok in Poland. And um, his goal, he had an agenda, he was aware, I kind of referred to this before, but in, in other areas, that there's this great, rich, interesting literature in halacha out there that we call the shooting, the Shilas and Shuvah's response to literature that um, gives a very human face to a lot of the technical halachas. Because we know there's one thing about having the code, and there's another one where you, I ask a personal shaila, and the posik looks at me and figures out me with my background and all of my individual idiosyncrasies and needs and, and the rest, what the psak should be, and sometimes the psak for me is going to be different than for you, and often it, it depends on, um, on what the circumstances are. Uh, and then you get a, a whole different nuanced variation in the halacha, and you realize, okay, Hashem really wants us to lead the best life wherever we are, depending on our circumstances. So he incorporates literally thousands of, of shooting, of shilas and shubas, questions and answers in the commentary, um, and and, and um, one one instance that I, uh, often comes up by me, it, he brings this whole story in discussing the mitzvah of living in Eretz Israel and the obligation of every Jew to live here. Um, there was an interesting case where three f- young families wanted to migrate from Eastern Europe, and they asked a local base team. The base team came up with a, a very hard to understand psak that it was forbidden because it was dangerous for the children. The trip would be dangerous and fraught, and so the basin said it was forbidden for the family to go. So the Pisgah Tshuva brings this, brings another Tshuva, he's opening up the Tshuvas, the Me'il Tzedakah, if I'm not mistaken, who, um, who rejects the basin sack and overrides it and says they can and should go. And he has a whole discussion of the, first of all, he gives the background of the importance of making Aliyah, of the mitzvah, the eternal mitzvah of living in Eretz Yisrael. Uh, and then he, he, he picks apart at the um, idea of the basin. He says, what does that mean? It's dangerous for the children? Where in anywhere in Shas do we have such a precedent for an idea that if it's, it, you know, if it's safe for the adults but dangerous for the children, you can't go? He said, quite the contrary. Usually children are a little more stout, a little more sturdy than adults. So there's dangerous for the children, it's dangerous for the adults too. But he didn't understand the whole, the whole logic and he wished the three fam- families his blessing. And uh, this individual story, you see, you see uh, you know, a good example of, of what, what he's able to bring to the pages of the Shulchan Aruch. Um, I'm gonna now uh, change gears and talk about um, two of the great personalities associated with Yeshiva of Velozhin. So it's been already, Velozhin's been around now, if we're holding, let's say, somewhere in the middle of the 19th century, it's almost a half century since Rav Chaim of Velozhin founded this great flagship yeshiva, the, seen as the role model yeshiva of all the yeshivas in the world till today. Um, and there were some amazing personalities. And sometimes you hear about the personalities, and we think, oh, is it all like one smooth pleasure ride? Uh, they had problems in Velozhin, even though till, it's, till the day they closed the doors of Velozhin, it was um, seen as the preeminent yeshiva. It was, um, 
it, in a sense, it overshadowed the Yeshiva so much that they had a hard time growing. Um, as a result, the Lajim was so, was so clear and distinct. Um, one of the most famous of the Rashi Yeshiva is the Nitziv. I'm going to talk about the Nitziv, and I'm going to talk about the Beis Salevi, Rav Yosef Dov Soloveitchik, who is the, let's say, the earliest famous Rav with the last name Soloveitchik, who will have a huge dynasty, a very famous, important um, uh, descendants who will, who will uh, come from that dynasty. But first, the Nitziv, his full name is Rav Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin. His dates are 1816 to 1893. Uh, he was, by his own account, and I've mentioned it before, does it sound familiar? He was not remarkable. He was sub-average. As a, does it sound familiar? As a student, as a student of base Madrid. So, um, and then they turned around, and here was this world-class Talmud Chacham, Rosh Yeshiva, uh, one of the great lights of the entire generation. And so they asked him, how did you do it? How did you go to somebody who, I mean, you know that we know that this is true. The Torah has the capacity to even lift a person's IQ. If an IQ, if there is such a thing, is somebody's natural intelligence, but if you learn enough Torah, you can actually become smarter. And they asked him, what did you do towards that end? Did you what, you learn 20 hours a day? So then Nitzif said, no. I didn't learn 20 hours a day. He said, I learned 15 hours a day. But I learned 15 hours a day, every day, including Shabbos, including Yantif, when I could. In some Yantifs, the davening goes longer, but when, when, when it was feasible, he says, I didn't do that in Tisha B'Av, when you can't. Um, and I did this 15 hours a day, every day, for 25 years, without break, no vacations. Um, and he did this between the pretty prime time ages of 12, started at 12, uh, until 37. And at 12, his family was about ready to give up on him and say, no, no, your life is not cut out for the base majesty, you show no promise. And he said, no, no, this is my place. And he proved them right. Uh, he had what we call, we remember this, the most important part of your body, be a Talmud Chacham. Oh, good. Wow. Well, we have a lot of sickness right now. Bar- Barak has pneumonia. I can tell. We should the have a full face. I know, I know. And I'm glad you're here. We have a, a good day, uh, interesting, interesting material. So right now we're talking about the great Nitziv, and Daniel, yeah, remember we've talked about this. I'm going to need your, I'm going to need your uh, help more than more than the, the average today to uh, to help me out here. Sabrua. So the, um, no, I know, but I'm saying you're more, you're a little more focal today than sometimes I ask for you. The um, remember this. What is the most important part of your body? You need to be a Tommy Chacham. Don't give it away. No, not yet. Let Eli guess. What would you guess? What's the most important part of your body? You need Tommy Chacham? Say it again. No, part of your body. Physical part of your body. What would you say you need before anything else? People say the mind, the seichel, like the heart, the eyes. A lot of guesses. Most people, you go through the whole body and you don't get what you don't guess what it is. And Daniel remembers what it is. In Yiddish, do you have the Yiddish term for it? Uh, I didn't. I don't remember. Zitz, I just, I zitz, fleisch. I the zitz fleisch. You're sitting on. For sure, all critical. But the zitz fleisch is seen as the most important thing. Meaning, if you have a smother, if you're able, zitz fleisch literally means the capacity to sit. If you have the zitz flesh, you have the flesh to sit on, that you could just sit there day in, day out, as we just said by the Nitziv, 15 hours a day without missing a day, um, you'll patiently get through all of God's shas, Rishoni, Machroni, you'll go through all the major canon, and if you're diligent enough, you'll, yeah, you'll review it and review it to the point that it is you. Is there something against learning in a, in a new 
you that? No. No, it's a figure of speech to convey the idea. The idea is hasmada. Like the near Talmud burns forever, the Talmud, who's the, the greatest compliment you can give to Yeshiva Bachar, in, in Yeshivas where they know these hashkafas, is to say, ooh, he's such a masmi. What a masmi. He's always in the base mentors. That's the greatest quality. I've seen a lot of people, you know, we, we meet people who are brilliant. Being brilliant happens. I mean, we've probably all met people who are, wow, impressive minds and so on. But sometimes like bright lights, they burn out too quickly and don't really go anywhere. Brilliant people have that tendency. But sometimes you have a figure like the Nitziv, who's just steady as it goes, and he becomes the greatest light of the generation. What are you going to say? It's not the definition of Fair enough. But my point is the constancy. He doesn't compromise on that. I mean, Rav Shaf is one of the contemporary figures that come to, comes to mind who remember the story about him with, with his, um, when he got engaged. He never missed a Seder. The only time he missed a Seder was the night Seder of his wedding. The next morning after his wedding, his Chavrusa didn't bother coming to the base medrash because it was the morning after. He's not going to have a Chavrusa that morning. And suddenly, early in the morning, he gets a loud knock on the door of his dormitory. Where are you? Or Shaf was waiting to learn. Wedding or no, I am here to learn Torah. And that's what we do with life. Um, so that was the Nitziv. He, um, his initial greatness, he already achieved when he was in his late 20s. He published a book, a famous book called the Ha'imek She'ela, literally deepening the Shaila, uh, play on the words of an old, old classic, a post-Talmudic classic called the Shiltos of Rav Achai Gaon. When we learned, when we covered the Gaonic period, I mentioned this and I mentioned the Nitziv there too. Um, it was one of the early works of Halacha. And um, it received new, let's say, prominence because of the commentary of the Nitziv. Uh, it would become an increasingly used in the base medrash as a halachic work. And he would be recognized, wait a minute, who is this commentator? Who, who is this Nitziv individual who wrote this? Um, it took another decade or so for him to be appointed the Rosh Hashiva at the age of 37, which is young. Usually a person doesn't become Rosh Hashiva at that young age. Um, he was well connected. His first wife was the granddaughter of Rav Chaim of Elozhen. Uh, she passed away. His second wife was his own niece, which is Mutter in Halacha. We're allowed to do that. We, we have examples. We have precedent for this in the Torah itself, in the Tanakh, where um, Osniel and, and Kali Vebracha are brothers, and Achsa is the daughter of Osniel, who marries Kalev. And uh, other other examples as well. So he marries his own niece, who's the daughter of the Aruch Shulchan, who was one of the great poskim of the time, the equivalent of the Mishnah Baruch. Um, he would become. He would then, because he was relatively young, he led Velazhin as the as the Rosh Hashiva for the rest of the existence of Velazhin, from 1854 until 1892, and it was a bumpy ride. It was tumultuous. There were arguments there, and he unfortunately had to sit through the arguments. Sometimes he was he was a part of it, but not by choice. And he was a personality that was sort of above reproach. But um, sometimes these complicated institutions and the difficult times they lived in, uh, they they themselves had had to sometimes go into the fray. He, um, in the end of the if you know the story, 
Um, there would be increasing demands. If you remember, the Tsar had these terrible decrees in addition to the Cantonist decrees that forced a quota of boys to go into uh, forced conscription in the army. Um, they also wanted to chip away at the Jewish community and Jewish continuity in Tyra. And the, the way they did this was to send their own um, honchos into, and I'm talking about Max Lilienthal, um, into the yeshivas to insist, A, that they add a secular curriculum, most of the yeshivas said absolutely not, and B, that they tone down the Torah curriculum, meaning add more of this and do less of that, was the idea. And after a while, it became clear the Tsar's end goal was no Torah, only secular studies. And when they made too many demands, the, the, the Nitziv in 1892 made the momentous decision to close the doors of Voloshin. Uh, which I don't know if you appreciate, you could appreciate this. It was shocking. People couldn't believe that he would do it. This is the great yeshiva, the world symbol symbolic for Jews all around the diaspora. That uh, that Nitziv would close his doors in the middle of the zman. You know, it, it was it wasn't even at the end of the seder. So um, he had to, for example, the boys were stuck. They were suddenly there was no yeshiva, there was no food, there was no anything, and they had to leave. Many of the boys had no money. They couldn't afford transit. They couldn't afford the, uh, the train ticket to go home. So the Nitziv personally gave them money. And um, they asked him, how could he do it? How did he have the... Uh, how did he have... How did Persistence, he know? that's what you need. Persistence, but to close the yeshiva, it's what he stood for. It was his whole life investment. The Jewish people hung on the yeshiva. And his response was, he says, how could he do it? He says, that part's up to Hashem. My job is simply to do the right thing. And I, you know, at one point you have to say, I cannot give in to their demands. And if the, op if the opportunities are follow the czar's decrees or close the doors, my only choice is to close the doors. It was such a trauma. It was such a blow to the Torah world. Well, yeah, uh, you have to do what you have to do. Emerson, that's what he said. That's what, exactly what he said. And he did do it. But I mean, listen, up, listen. You have no job and you have to pay a mortgage and a car. And no matter what, you're going to find a way to make it all work. Right. Right, he, um, the next year, he would desperately try to work to pay off his debts now that he'd paid so much money, like for example, uh, buying the students' tickets and other things. Um, and many people believe that the one year later when he died, um, that it was a heartache, that he died from closing the yeshiva. The whole episode, as it were, put an end to his life. Now, Baruch Hashem, he had a long life, but still one can see how such a thing could, uh, could, 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 um, could spell the end for somebody. Um, in, you can always take historical retrospect and look look at the big picture. The closing of the yeshiva was a tragedy, but Baruch Hashem, we're a tenacious bunch, and one of the themes of this whole class is um, a lot of sickness. Baruch, Baruch still has pneumonia, Aaron's sick, so a lot of our regulars are unwell. But if you see others, by all means, send them. The, um, the we're a tenacious, part of the message I was saying about this whole class is that we're tough. And they could, you know, we take a lick, what's the uh, watch advertisement takes a lick and but keeps on taking, we just keep going. And so when they do these terrible things to us in one area, they'll, they'll stamp out our fire, our flame in one area, that's okay. We'll just ignite over there. We said a similar insight when we talked about the, um, the rampant brook burnings in the Middle Ages, it was followed by a Kodesh Baruch Hu's invention or the, or the spread of the printing press in the Middle Ages, where we, our attitude was, okay, you want to burn our books? We'll just print several thousand copies of other books. And we find a way, we're tenacious.
And um, what we see in this area was actually the closing of Voloshin would be terrible, but it, actually, it, it led to the development of other yeshivas. Some yeshivas opened, others that were previously open started thriving because Voloshin used to take all the best students and now the best students start to spread out and about to different, uh, to different new, uh, new places. Um, what we see, many yeshivas literally relocated lock, stock, and barrel to other locations, to Eretz Yisrael, to, to, to America. Um, Tels, Mir, and other, other yeshivas come to mind. It's true that you could say that um, another yeshiva opened three years later in Volozhin. It was much smaller. It lasted, but it struggled. But it really, everybody recognized it was not really Volozhin wasn't the same thing. They didn't attract the best and the brightest anymore, didn't have the same prominence, wasn't the same shita exactly. Um, there would be other yeshivas founded based on Volozhin, one Gaoni Volozhin in Tel Aviv and later B'nai Barak. There's um, one of the flagship yeshivas of modern Israel, Yeshiva Eitz Chaim, but they never see, achieved the same stature exactly. Um, what some people say in Volozhin, where other yeshivas really did transplant and, and sustain what they had before, they say maybe Volozhin retired its number, is, is one way of thinking of it uh, as a metaphor, if, if, you, if I can drop from baseball. The, um, the Nitziv, interestingly, before I, before I uh, conclude what I wanted to say about him, he was one of the early members of an organization called Chovavet Sion. Does that mean anything to you? Chovavet Sion? That was before there was a Zionist movement. There were the people who were into the idea of Jews returning to their land. And it's an interesting organization, and eventually it'll morph into what we think of as modern Zionism. But it's for, in its early iteration, as Chovavet Sion literally means those who love Israel, love Sion, um, its members included not just secular um, leaders and organizers and masculine enlightened Jews, but there were big rabbani. We're going to meet a bunch of them just now. Um, and the Nitziv, certainly among them, and, and, and right there front and center, um, together with Rav Kalisher and, and some of the others, um, it was only when the secular forces started to move in and dominate that he, with the other rabbani, started to distance themselves. So if you already get, if you want to understand what goes on in Eretz Israel today, one early glimpse of what we see eventually transpiring in Israel already is evident in the in the history of the Kol Beitzion, where initially it's a Jewish idea, it's a Torah idea. What are you talking about? Of course, all Jews want to come back to Eretz Israel, as I just illustrated in the story in the Pesach Tshuva. This is our dream. This is what we're. This is Mashiach, Mashiach is going to come here and redeem all of humanity. So that itself is a Jewish idea. It's when the secular come and give it a particular um, non-Torah twist that they that they will distance themselves from it. But one great story about him, you know, and we haven't gotten to this quite yet. I'll get I'll get up to this parsha. Uh, if you remember our trip to Maskeret Batya, I talked about the Jews slowly starting to open up these Moshevot, these farming colonies, and farm the land en masse for the first time in, in, in um, almost a, a millennia and many centuries, uh, since the Talmudic era. And um, in Brishol Litzion, after many false starts, after a lot of struggle, they managed to get off the ground the first Jewish wine factory in the modern era in Eretz Israel, And when they sent the first bottle of wine 
produced in Rishon Lishion by Jews in Eretz Yisrael. Get, I mean, get this. This is emotional. It's like the grandeur of the moment. The first bottle of Jews, the Jews themselves worked the land and cultivated it, and they sent it to the Nitziv in Volosian. When he heard what had happened, he asked them, wait just a minute. He went into his um, personal room. He came out dressed in his finest Shabbos clothes. He said, he said, to taste wine made by Jews in Eretz Kodesh, this is, this is like Shabbos. He said, uh, he says, this, is, this is an occasion worth remembering. Um, Oh, I'll give you the quote. How marvelous, I'm translating, that I was, I merited to see and taste pre ha'aretz, the fruit of the land, ma'ase achenu, the work of our brothers who are building the land, if only my portion would be with their portion. He said, he said wistfully, um, some say, with the, the, the Nitziv was referring to a fulfillment of the Gemara in Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin is the, is the place where we learn a lot about the end of days, the Bias Mashiach. It's there on, on Sadi Chesamur Aleph that the Gemara indicates that when the land will start bearing produce that's harvested by Jews, that will indicate that there's a kriva sakit that the end is coming clear, coming close. Related to uh, to the Nitziv indirectly by marriage, Rav Yosef Dov Soloveitchik, who's usually referred to by his great halachic work, is the Beis Halevi. He was a great grandson of Rav Chaim Evolajan. He, at one point, um, led the Evolajan with the Nitziv, and because they had different styles of learning and different styles of leadership, even though they were personally very close, um, the Beis HaLevi would leave, and Soloveitchik would leave eventually and, and, and go off to lead Yeshiva in Slutsk. Um, the Beis HaLevi begins what we think of as brisker Torah. Does that, look, does that sound familiar to you? <coughs> brisker, brisker approach, which when you think of it, you associate, Volozhin is certainly part of this, we, we think along these lines, that's a certain high-level, precise, clear analysis um, would set the standards for his son, Rav Chaim Brisker, and his many descendants. The Beis HaLevi has a very famous tshuva in response to a, a new phenomenon. One of the Hasidish Admorim, the Radziner Rebbe, had discovered what he claimed was tchelis. If you're familiar with the story, this part in the late 19th century, that's the first tchelis that we could trace, if it was tchelis, on the map since the days of Abaya, back in the times of the Gemara. And um, it was the Beis Levi who wrote the long, very persuasive tshuva that refuted it and said what the Radziner Rebbe was claiming is tchelis, he says it's not, you know, halavai it should be, but he concluded it's not the real thing. Uh, it's an oft-quoted uh, tshuva because the discussion became relevant all over again in the modern era. In the um, late 1800s, there's still this terrible decree, the edict to conscript children. Sometimes young adults were, were forced to serve in the Tsar's army. And it was still as much as it was in the 1820s. As, uh, in the late 1800s, it was very cruel, very arbitrary, tore communities apart. And the story goes like this. One Shabbos morning, they were in the middle of Kriya Satyra in Slutsk, when the Beis Halevi was the Rosh Hashiv in Slutsk. And a woman burst into shul, a young woman burst into shul, distraught, crying. She said, my husband has just been taken on Shabbos Kodesh by the Tsar's army. And he's been drafted into the army, and that means he's lost. 25 years and gone. 
And she says, you, Jewish leaders, you have to do something. And um, many in the, I mean, picture the scene, many in the shul were shocked. You can't interrupt the Torah against the halacha. And they tried to quiet her down and dismiss her. And the Beis HaLevi clomped on the bima, and he said, he said, the Kriya Torah is interrupted by my decree. I'm hereby saying that there's no more Kriya Torah this morning until the leaders of the community go and secure this man's release. And nobody's going to oppose the Beis HaLevi if he, if, he make, if he makes such a statement. And so there's tremendous commotion. Community leaders um, leave the shul to try to arrange to do something. How do you go about doing that on Shabbos Kodesh? And they somehow do it. And it takes several hours, but they come back to shul later on that afternoon to finish the Kriya Satira. And this part of the story always gets me. The husband gets an aliyah to the Torah. Daniel, did you get this? Great story. Okay. The, uh, he gets an aliyah to the Torah, and he benches Gomel. Why do we bench Gomel? What's a more dangerous situation than, than surviving you know, the threat to your spiritual life and he benched Gomo, exactly, for surviving a terrible um, uh, threat to one's life? Um, the same story, the Beis Alevi was initially part of the Chovavit Sion, and um, he withdrew, and he'll become a, a strong critic of the new organization. Um, one finds a very strong anti-Zionist strain within uh, the Soloveitchik family. The Brisk, Brisker, uh, Rav Chaim Brisker was very strong, uh, strong critic. His son, the Brisker Rav, would be, would be um, just as strong. Uh, and we'll, we'll learn about them more. But it really starts back with the day, in the days of the Beis Halevi, who was really, like like Venetia, very let down. Meaning, there was a lot of hope that we would be able to work together, that the Torah world, together the secular world, but the secular world took over um, the Zionist movement. Um, as we said, Velozhin set the standard. There are great yeshivas that emerge. Uh, I haven't mentioned them, so very briefly, Mir, the yeshiva in Mir, which was a city in Poland, it's a small city in Poland, opened as early as 1815, one of the early, long-lasting yeshivas. Uh, by 1840, there were 100 students in Mir. By the turn of the century, by the 20th century, it became, after Velozhin, after eight years after Velozhin closed, it became the leading Lithuanian yeshiva, at least. Um, Tells was founded in 1875. Tells is known, if you've heard this before, for having the Telza, the Telza, the Telza Derech of Limud, which is a certain distinct kind of logical analysis. There's a strong emphasis in Tells on studying Rishonim. Tells also did something, not just in their, in their approach to learning, but they also introduced something. Uh, they, very controversially, incorporated Musser. Last time we learned about the Musser movement, which was very controversial and was not accepted by everybody, but in Tells, they said, yeah, we should work on our mythos, and that's part of our curriculum, and they incorporated it into their curriculum. Tells also had something that we think of as very logical, if you start a school. They... Uh, they separated their classes by levels of ability. And to us, we would say, Pshita, obviously you do that, but no yeshiva had done that, at least not, not in the modern movement of the yeshivas. Usually it was one class, and you made it, and you didn't make it. And it tells they, they divided you, and you had a chance to maybe, if you were uh, had less, less of a background, you could excel at your own relative level. Um, some of the other great names, Rodden, Slutz, Pretz, Pressburg, Lemberg, or other great yeshivas, and there'll be more too that we'll hear about. Um, 
Last Gadol I'm going to talk about, and then I'm going to talk about uh, the spiraling down of Eastern Europe. Um, the last great name was considered the Gadol Ador in the late 19th century. His name is Rabbi Yitzchok Elchanan Specter. Some people know of him because the name of the rabbinic program at YU, at Chief University, is Ritz. Rabbinic, uh, Rabbeinu Yitzchak Elchan Inspector Theological Seminary. Uh, or Rabbi Yitzchak Elchan Theological Seminary is the full name, uh, named for him. But he was famous independent of Ritz and YU. He was, and he, Louis, he was a prodigy. He married at 13, which was pretty normal in those days. He uh, had learned with Rav, the Maharil Diskin, who moves to Eretz Yisrael later on, we'll meet him too. Uh, the, the Rav Yitzchak Hanan served in a city called Kovno. He was considered in Russia, at least the Gadol Hador, and really throughout the world he'd be turned to. We're going to hear his name again. I'm introducing these figures, but we're not done meeting them. They're going to uh, be very involved in the, in the crises of the day. He was involved in, in resolving the crisis in Volozhin when there was a political tumult in Volozhin, also in Mir. Um, he has some interesting piske halacha in, um, there was a famine one Pesach, and he allowed Ashkenazim to eat, get this, peas and beans. Kidney oat, in other words. But he said for Pikoch <coughs> Nefesh, he, he, uh, he loosened the requirement for that year. Um, he, when, there was, when, the, when the esrogim were so um, few that they, the prices became exorbitantly expensive, he allowed a controversial strain, um, questionable whether it was really an esrog, called the Corfu Citron. Um, he was also somebody who was very much on the side of Klal Yisrael. He tried to fight the harsh decrees of the Russian government, along with Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. Uh, and he too, we see, was initially a member of the Chobet Sion, and he also moved away. He'll be central when we talk about the Shemitah controversy that engulfs the Jewish world in, the, in, in um, 1888, 1889. Um, the situation for Jews in Eastern Europe during this period is, um, gets, goes from miserable to desperate. We've talked mostly about <coughs> the Tsar's decrees. I haven't really talked about blatant attacks, but there were many. In fact, the term for the attacks, you know, this pogroms. And even though we turn nowadays, pogrom is a very commonly used word, it's used to refer to any. Uh, situation, any, any, any of these attacks, but the term actually comes from this period. And in some, to some degree, it's, it's characteristic of what was going on in Russia in those days. In 1821, <coughs> in the um, city of Odessa, which is located in the Ukraine, um, it's consider, it begins what's considered the first wave of pogroms in the modern era. And what's a pogrom? Eventually, these would devastate Russian Jewry. Um, you have family that comes from Russia? Yeah. Uh, my wife's family almost exclusively. The um, <clears throat> what's a pogrom? A pogrom is an attack. First of all, a pogrom is by defi as defined here, the government lets it happen. The government tolerates it. Sometimes they will initiate it covertly. They don't explicitly do this. Um, the purpose, of course, is to either incite the Jews to convert. If you remember, the Tsar wanted the Jews to become Russian Orthodox Christians or to leave the country. They didn't want the Jews, much like our experience elsewhere. 
sometimes the police acting as, uh, as, as uh, agents of the government would let the local non-Jews know that they were going on holiday. The next couple of days, there'd be no police activity so that the local ruffians feel free to do what they like to do. They would t they'd give a heads up. And of course, the hooligans would take advantage and say, okay, it's time we're gonna have a party. Let's go, let's go raid the Jewish uh, community. And of course, the raid would include gross theft, often violence, sometimes murder, often rape, whatever these young toughs felt that they could do. Um, the police were absent. They were, and the attacks went unpunished. There was only gain from them, nothing to lose. So this didn't go on constant, this did not go on necessarily constantly at first. They built, and they waxed and they waned, and you didn't always know when they were coming, and the Jewish community was literally terrorized because you always waited, you didn't know, is it coming, is it not coming? Your whole family could be destroyed overnight. Um, there would be a major wave exactly a half a century after the first one in 1871, again in Odessa, and this time it hurts for a new reason. Odessa had become, many considered in Russia, the center of the Russian Enlightenment. Enlightenment meaning the secularization of the Jews. And it shook the Maskili, because what's the idea of the Enlightenment? What motivated probably more Jews than anything else was the idea that, listen, if we throw off the shackles of tradition, if we change our old traditional dress, if we can somehow integrate a non-Jewish society, finally the non-Jews will love us. They'll see that we're not just sticking with the Jewish people, but we're good, upstanding members of society. We contribute, we're valuable members, uh, they'll love us for it. And here suddenly, the Jews who were trying to acculturate, trying to please their non-Jewish neighbors, that's what they stood for. That was what their whole, the whole value system was, was, was based on this. Suddenly, not only were they not accepted, apparently becoming what they called themselves, like the German equivalent, they called them the Russians of the Mosaic faith, meaning they were really Russians and not really strongly identified as Jews. Somehow that did not change their status in the eyes of the Russians. The Russians still saw them as dirty jits. Uh, a, a, a pejorative term for a dirty, dirty Jew. And um, that starts already in 1871. And in the 1880s, 10 years later, starting in 1881, there would be probably the most intense series of pogroms that have a major, major effect and probably very well known to you as well. Um, what kicks off the proceedings this time is Tsar Alexander II was, was assassinated. We now know having nothing to do with the Jewish people, but of course when he was assassinated, they, they didn't know his assassin initially, and guess who was blamed? The Jews were blamed. This would hit off, in the course of the next three years, over 200 of these pogroms. And a pogrom, when I say a pogrom, it could be finite, it could, be, it could last for a day in one village, it could also be several days covering a whole district. A whole area could also be in several different areas simultaneously. Um, in Hebrew, this period, this three-year period of 200 different pogroms is referred to as Sufot Banegev, which is the storm in a dry area. It'll devastate major cities, the Jewish communities and cities of Kiev, of Warsaw, of Odessa. When I say Russia, I'm, I'm referring to Eastern Europe in general. Poland would be included in that then. Um, it's interesting. These pogroms were arguably among the most traumatizing. 
there were fewer Jews killed. In earlier programs, more were killed, but somehow didn't have the same effect. But these, thousands were injured, thousands were raped, homes were destroyed wholesale, uh, many were left penniless. You picture Fiddler on the Roof. You ever see Fiddler on the Roof or know about the story? Right, all the stories, Shalom Aleichem stories. It's from. It's taking a cue from this period. That's that's what that's uh, ripping a ripping a page from that history book. The um, the new Tsar Alexander the Third says the pogroms that were hit off because they blamed the Jews for the assassination of the old Tsar. The pogroms were the fault of the victim. Always blame the victim because they they can't defend themselves. The Jews were the cause of their own misfortune. He argued. And um, his response, therefore, to the insult with injury, his response to the, to the brutal attack was to issue these harsh new laws against the Jews, pouring salt in the wound. So among the new laws, what are called the May laws, they're now forbidden to settle in outside cities. The Jews are ghettoized, restricted to certain places. They're forbidden to engage in commerce on Sunday or on other Christian holidays. They're not allowed to register property or mortgages. And these decrees uh, are furthering, uh, further uh, putting the nail in the coffin. There is literally, for many Jews, no way to make a parnasa. And with these decrees, this is the final straw. Many Jews start to reassess their status in Russia. They say, we cannot continue here. And many will begin, there'll be a wave now of mass immigration of Jews to mostly, of course, and most famously, the Americas, the United States, less so to Canada, um, less so but some to South America. Um, there'll be a, a, from Lithuania, many of the Jews will go from Lithuania. Any, do you have any idea? There's a strong Lithuanian connection between, between um, a connection between Lithuania, which we think of like Northern Russia, Vilna, and South Africa. So many of them go to South Africa. Um, some come to Eretz Yisrael, and we'll talk about what they call the first Aliyah. That's directly a result of this. They call it the first Aliyah of the modern era, which is a, an unfair name, but we'll comment on that later. Um, so, Jews are leaving en masse. Those who stay have it, have it very hard. Um, what it means now is many Jews are forced to go and live in the city. And life in the city is miserable. They have extremely poor uh, living conditions. Um, you have to understand, life before there were labor unions. Labor unions would be a later phenomenon. Jews would be at the forefront of many labor unions to try to protect the rights of the working class before then, you just had these big cities where a few fat cats got rich and everybody else suffered and worked these monotonous jobs in a factory, often without any, without any protection, without, any, without any, uh, anybody going, um, protecting their interests. Um, the Industrial Revolution, of course, is responsible for this. It creates, there's an influx into the city because everybody feels, oh good, in the factory I can finally have a job and make a living, but there's so much demand that um, there's not much in, 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 the, in the form of wages. They work long hours for very, very little. The, uh, they live in very crowded environments. Um, the conditions of work are extremely dangerous. Often people die or lose limbs in these new factories with these new gadgets they hadn't fully checked and who could care anyway? It's expensive to check. So what's the difference if, uh, if a few factory worker, workers lose their fingers? Um, the assembly lines would be increasingly dehumanizing. I mean, what I'm describing now is not 
clearly not just a Jewish phenomenon, this is a phenomenon of the world, but um, the Jews will be impacted by this. Um, Jews were forced into industrial labor because they couldn't get any other jobs. Um, one of the things one sees is that that's why later on, in, in a generation or two, many of the Jews would eagerly join the new socialist movement because so they saw the immense corruption. They saw that also the Industrial Revolution didn't promise a good life for the Jews, and maybe if you could somehow overthrow the, the corrupt aristocracy, the working class could rise up. They, could, they envisioned a better future for the working masses. Um, the reason I describe this in a, in a class where we're focused on Torah and Torah observance, under these circumstances, Torah observance slipped dramatically. It's very hard when Ein Kemach Ein if you don't have your daily, your daily uh, bread, to, to, to sit in Lintaira. The conditions in the city were also um, extremely antithetical to a Torah lifestyle. The city, of course, is the source of amorality, the whole enlightenment, secularization of the world, bringing new opportunities to indulge the Sahara. That is everything to do, and nothing, everything to do with, uh, with the Yetzirah, and nothing to do with Torah life. Um, the big city, where, where do you live? New York. New York, so you know this feeling. Um, people from small towns sometimes don't realize this, but you're part of a big city, there is, it goes, it goes along with experience is a feeling of anonymity. I'm just a, I'm just a cog in the system, I'm, I'm, I'm a nameless, faceless individual. Um, that also is not good for Tyra. Person feels that, you know, I could just leave, I could just kind of slip away. My, 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 my existence is not as significant uh, in, in, under these circumstances. That's terrible for observance. Um, so you have a greater anonymity. The pace of city life is frantic. People move fast. Uh, there's no time for davening, no time certainly for living Torah. Um, there are hedonistic values. Families, the, family, the, whole, the whole knot of the family life loosens. Um, there is, it's very hard to have any cohesive family life. People move away. Aunts and uncles, extended families uh, no longer really are that connected. Um, not only families, but the central kahila system, the whole idea of having a community. How do you have a community? Everybody's working so hard, they're just struggling to make a parnasa. There's no time to invest in the greater klal in, in, in the community. Um, these are hard days. And we think about America, which is the next topic that I'm going to talk about. We talk about the golden in Medina, the golden state, as what America was seen from the, from the vantage point of Europe, um, as being... Um, a death knell to observance. Many people feel that going to America was uh, was almost the end. If you were going there, you'd be abandoning any 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 links to Torah. Um, people felt the same going to Palestine in these days. Uh, increasingly, that'll be the case going to Palestine. That you're going to have no connection with with Torah or with tradition. But you know, it didn't start with America, and it doesn't start with secular Palestine either. Many Jews have been secularized in the old world, in the old country. So much so, by the 1930s, in Poland, which was a Jewish center, central area population, by the 1930s, only 70% of Jewish children, uh, excuse me, wrong, 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 let me say it differently, as many as 70% of Jewish children in Poland, Poland, which used to be the great center of Tyra a couple centuries earlier, now no longer attended Jewish schools of any kind. Only 30% were connected with traditional Torah education. So um, you know, we sometimes look with romanticized um, eyes back at the old world and how great it was. The old world had also started to slide away a couple centuries earlier. 
Um, and one of the places that they went to was America. America's, I'm going to introduce it today. We're going to start talking about America. I'm not going to finish it, though. America's on people's minds, especially in Russia where the opportunities, that life was so bleak and the opportunities were so, so limited. And you heard stories of people. You heard about the, uh, the millionaires, the, the, the multimillionaires in America. You heard about Jews sometimes making it big. Jews of the dimension of Judah, Judah Turo, who was a great philanthropist, Levi Strauss, who is, who is a legendary uh, wealthy Jew who made it in America, uh, it gave the impression that the, it, you went to America and the opportunities were almost unlimited. They would go and they would see it wasn't quite as easy as all that. Uh, they, would, they, would, they would be hit with a, with a strong dose of, um, a, sober, a, sobri a sobering uh, dose of, of reality of how it wasn't so easy to make it in America. Although, if you look at the collective Jewish experience in the Americas, Jews did disproportionately well in succeeding along the lines of American success, both in terms of the career and then, of course, overlapping in terms of financial abilities, because people who were going with such a deep desire to succeed, if that's if they, if they take their spark, which Kutch Baruch gives them for Kedusha, they channel it elsewhere, sometimes they can succeed in those areas too. And so I, I, I suggest that there's some correlation between the disproportionate success that American Jews would eventually uh, enjoy According to, according to American secular terms of success, um, would be related. One of the appeals of America is that relative to the world, there was anti-Semitism in America. Maybe it's hard for us to imagine that in the PC uh, 21st century, um, but, but um, there was anti-Semitism, but it was nothing. It paled in comparison to the pogroms of, <coughs> of Europe. Um, it was subdued. It was almost welcoming. One of the famous um, early American Jews, a uh, poetess by the name of Emma Lazarus, um, who, lived in the, who lived a very short life in the middle of the, of the 1800s, she herself was a descendant of, of a Sephardi family that was well established in America. She wrote the famous lines that you can see today inscribed at the foot of the Statue of Liberty in the New York Harbor. Do you know the lines? Very famous. She writes, Danny, you know this? She writes, she writes initially, and, and they became such prophetic lines and so descriptive of the American experience and what America offered, not just Jews, but people around the world till today. She writes, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled mass, masses yearning to breathe free. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. America heralds, and it's a myth. It wasn't really like this, quite like this, but that's how people built up America. And, and, and from the 1880s, we see now a, a, a mass immigration to America. Let's back up and remind ourselves what's been in America up until the 1880s, before these large, this large influx of Jews, predominantly from Eastern Europe. So, do you remember the first uh, communities of American Jews, where they came from? Really logical guess if you don't remember. A couple centuries earlier. Very good, very good. Columbus might be, and, so, and, and certainly, even if Columbus wasn't Jewish, he had Jews aboard, and there were and many of the conquistadors, many of many of the uh, explorers in these initial generations were indeed Jewish, both from Spain and Portugal. Uh, this is in the 15th century, the 1400s, in other words, in the 1500s too. Um, now, most of those initial Jews didn't stay. Most of the explorers didn't stay, but some did. 
There's a famous Jew by the name of Louis de Torres, who was, was with Christopher Columbus in 1492. He settled in Cuba, um, and his claim to fame historically, it's not a Jewish claim to fame, but his, uh, in, the, in the secular books, he was the one who first figured out in Cuba, the locals were, uh, there was a certain plant that they were using, uh, and it seemed to be very, very attractive. Do you know the name of the plant? They called it tobacco. And Louis de Torres would introduce tobacco into the old world, into Europe, uh, and uh, terrific, right? Uh, so we're, we're responsible for all those uh, lung cancer deaths too. So blame the Jews for another one. The, um, but we also know the Jews were very, there was another discovery in the new world that was sent back to the old world. There was a new bird that they discovered in the new, in, in the new world that became all the rage in the old world called, not the dodo in this case, but rhymes with dodo, hodu, turkey. Turkey, so that within a century, they didn't have um, Turkey at the beginning of the, of the 16th century, but by the late 1500s, late 16th century, when uh, Shakespeare wrote The Tempest, he refers to Turkey as a common dish that clearly his audience recognized in Britain at the time. So Turkey became, Turkey was introduced, it became a whole, whole subject in Halacha where we rely on how do we know if fowl, if birds are kosher, uh, we know that they're kosher because we have a tradition but we have the tradition of turkey because nobody ever ate turkey before the 16th century. How then is it kosher? Is a good kasha that post came address. The first group of Jews to arrive on American soil from the 15th century were 23, <coughs> 23 Sephardi Jews. Excuse me, not the 15th, 16th, in, in the 17th century. Um, as a group to settle there and live there, it took until 1654, the first organized group to move to a place called New Amsterdam. Anybody know what New Amsterdam is called today? New York. That's the original name of New York. New Amsterdam, because the people running uh, New Amsterdam at the time were indeed Dutch, uh, Dutch including um, the Dutch West India Company, which was in, it was, was in charge of it, um, which had a lot of Jewish money and influence. The governor was a famous individual by the name of Peter Stuyvesant. Stuyvesant? There's a school named for him, I think, a, pre a pre prestigious uh, uh, prep school named Stuyvesant School in, in New York till today. He was, um, he was the initial governor in New Amsterdam, and he didn't want these Sparty Jews. He was as anti-Semitic as the rest of them. Uh, he was not happy to have these 23 um, Sparty Jews come join, but because the Jews had so many great connections in the business world, in the Dutch West India Company, uh, and they employed Stuyvesant, so he eventually, reluctantly, took these Jews on. Um, the Jews spread from New Amsterdam, which later on became New York. Now you have problems at that time to take a Jew who doesn't work on Chavez. Right, 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 for sure, for sure. These Jews, we don't, most of them would be lost to history, meaning most of their descendants seem to have been integrated into America at large. Uh, they didn't leave so many traditions. Right, it was America. What percentage of Right, 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 right. So we see this already in the early generations. Um, Jews would settle all along the eastern coast of the Americas. Um, I mentioned this uh, a few days ago when we, when we first talked about American Jews. The largest community initially was in, of all places, Charleston, South Carolina. Um, America's new. Amer the Jews on some level had never been in a homeland like America. It, what it offered, what it promised them was so, was so alluring, was so attractive. 
first of all, again, the low-grade anti-Semitism and accepting them as they were. We know that America, especially when after the independence war, um, a century later, America officially adopted the policy of separating church and state, that they were relative religious freedoms. That was unprecedented in the world. The call to assimilate, to become part of the mainstream was almost irresistible. The uh, descendants, usually who intermarried with other Americans, would be joined in the, in the 1800s by about 1,500, excuse me, 150,000 Jews coming from Germany, I mentioned them too. Um, the German Jews who came to America, usually, if you picture this, if you're a Jew, you're leaving the old country, you're going to the new world, that often reflected the fact that you didn't have strong roots in the old country. So the people who left and went to America, again, I'm generalizing, but usually were, by definition, not so from, kind of liberal. They were going out to explore new horizons, literally. And uh, the German Jews especially brought Reform Judaism, what they called um, very liberal values. They would, be, they would go over and establish a, the first rabbinic seminary in the New World called Hebrew Union College, set up in Cincinnati. It still exists in Cincinnati. Today, the Reform Movement has, has a number of different rabbinic campuses, New York, Los Angeles. Um, in 1883, of this new ilk of Americans, very liberal, they were a combination of the old Sephardi blood with the new German liberal blood. Um, at the Hebrew, Hebrew Union College, they had a banquet celebrating um, the first rabbinic class that was graduating, receiving what they called smicha, not, not a halachic smicha, <coughs> and of course, to honor the affair, they um, celebrated with a shrimp cocktail. They served shrimp at the, um, at, at the, at the uh, HEC, of course, um, flagrantly and deliberately um, opposing tradition. Two years later, in 1885, the reform movement came out with their official statement, their platform statement called the Pittsburgh Platform, which establishes reform dogmas. And there, they, are, they have no embarrassment. They're very clear. They reject kashus. They reject, they reject any ritual, any kind of, any formal dress that would distinguish you as Jews. In the reform movement's early iteration, 19th century, they um, bristled at the notion of being distinct. You, you might remember we talked about this. They, they opposed any involvement with the Damascus blood libel. We shouldn't get involved with Jews. They have nothing to do with us uh, um, across the world. We, we, we live our own lives as, as Germans of the Mosaic persuasion. The, uh, they, at this point, interestingly, in the Pittsburgh platform in 1885, the, Jew, the reform movement officially affirms the existence of Hashem. They'll change that later. But at this point, still, they, they believe that Hashem exists, but he said, they, they said, you can, but the practices, those mitzvahs, halacha, only things that elevate the spirit are relevant. Everything else we throw away. One more little bit, and then, and then we'll call it a day. Um, this new influx of Russian Jews, not just Russian, they're Poles, they're Romanians, they're others as well, but it's predominantly Russian. They come in, a total of some 550,000 new immigrants that immigrated between 1880 and 1900, in just 20 years, um, which is dramatic and changes everything. 
the reaction of the already established American Jews, Sephardi, German, and others, was one of embarrassment. I have nothing to do with them. Okay, maybe by nature, maybe by ethnicity. We both come from the same heritage. But they were embarrassed because if the whole goal was to Americanize these old Jews who looked Jewish, who spoke Jewish, they spoke that Yiddish language, uh, they, were, they were a throwback. Um, many more Jews would arrive from Eastern Europe. By World War I, an another, an additional 800,000 Russian, mostly Russian Jews came. That meant that by World War I, the U.S. Jewish population grew to well over two million. We'll see that within a couple of decades, um, the American Jewish community becomes the largest in the world by the 1920s. It's, it's uh, clearly the largest Jewish community in the world, in theory, because in practice, with assimilation and intermarriage, they were losing their numbers, but um, they kept growing because so many displaced Jews from elsewhere in the world uh, were attracted to America. The flight was sometimes romanticized, sometimes not romanticized, but simplified. They went over by boat, looking at the Statue of Liberty. They went through Ellis Island, if you have that picture in your mind. But it was often fraught and difficult. And I'm going to share one story that's just harrowing. Uh, it's told in, in a book by Irving Howe called The World of Our Fathers, um, which it described at to what degree, to what expense um, um, Jews would go to to reach the golden waters of, of America. Um, it describes one story, one story of a family. They had, with their life's savings, which wasn't much, but it was what, whatever they had, they had already paid non-refundable, for non-refundable tickets to passage across the Atlantic. One-way tickets. And they made it as far, you know, you had to get there, so they had to travel around across Europe paying off various officials and bribing as they went. They finally made it as far as the port in Antwerp. And um, there, was a, there was a regulation, there's a bureaucracy, and part of the bureaucracy was the family had to pass medical examinations. And the doctor looked at the family, and everybody passed except for the youngest, a little girl by the name of Fagy, who the doctor found was stricken with an eye disease called trachoma, which is fairly common then. Um, and he said, he said, you're all free to go. This girl can't go. She has trachoma. We don't allow uh, contagious diseases in America. The family now is faced with an ultimate dilemma. Okay. They, all of their material possessions are in those tickets. They lose the tickets, they lose everything. Do you turn down a dream of a lifetime and what they consider their only chance for a bright future? But you can't abandon a little girl. They decided to leave Fagy behind. So everybody got in the boat and they let this little girl suddenly orphaned. Um, the end of the story, as he tells it, apparently she miraculously managed. She grew into a woman of substance. She got married. Uh, later on, they tried to make contact with her, and she wouldn't. She wouldn't have anything to do with it. But um, that was the that was the desperation of many of these Jews, especially the secularizing Jews, the Jews who wanted that new life, that clung on to that dream, uh, even even to the point that they abandoned their own. Um, tomorrow we're going to pick up with the uh, arrival of many of the immigrants in Ellis Island and beyond and, uh, and what, what they would find when they actually came to the Americas. For sure, mine did too. Right.